the, the population was, was bolstered by retiring soldiers who were given the honor of building this Roman colony, a small Rome outside Rome, which followed the rules and laws of Rome as opposed to the ones of the surrounding area. Okay, so it's a really important place. Why else was it important? Because there were gold mines nearby. This probably says why Philip stayed. It's got gold and silver mines. They minted their own coins. It was really profitable. Not just that, but going right through the center of the city, literally the high street, was called the Ignatian Way. And the Ignatian Way was the main trade route from uh, Asia through, through to Europe, through from, from, from east to west. And so Philippi became an incredibly important trading town. Lots of traders there. We even meet one in the, in the New Testament, a woman called Lydia, really famous for trading, and it became very wealthy. So this is Philippi. So Paul writes a letter to them. He writes a letter because he loves this church, and this is what he writes, one of the things he writes. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. There are a couple of words that are highlighted there, joy, partnership, and Christ Jesus. You know, whenever we do some of these uh, Bible stories during an all-age service, sometimes Chloe will get up, uh, or one of us will say, can you keep an eye out for these? We're going to ask you questions about this afterwards. Well, as we go through Philippians, these words, these themes, these ideas are there. Keep an eye out for them. Joy, partnership, togetherness, and Jesus Christ. Okay? Keep an eye out for them. Paul writes a letter. He who began will complete. The thing about the church in Philippi is that it should never have existed. It wasn't in the plan. Turn to Acts 16 if you want to know a little bit more, but we'll, we'll cover this. In Acts 16, we learn about the founding of the church in Philippi. What was going on is Paul's doing one of his missionary journeys, as he does, and he's going through Turkey, modern, Asia, or sorry, modern Turkey, then it was Asia Minor, and he wanted to go that way, and it says the, the Spirit of God said no. So he said, all right, I'll not go there. I'll go here. And he said, no way, we were stopped by the Spirit of Jesus. So there's a bit of a change of plans going on. Paul wanted to go at digger, dig deeper into Asia. But the Holy Spirit says no. And then one night he has a dream from a man in Macedonia. That's where Philippi was one of the leading cities. It says, please come over and help us. From the very, very start of this whole enterprise, this is a God-ordained enterprise. He who began a good work. So these are snapshots. We dug them up from Philippi. These are Paul's snapshots. Change of plan. He has a reroute, and he follows on the road again, follows the Ignatian road in a different direction to where he thought, and he comes to this place, Philippi, via a place called Neapolis. And they decide what they normally do is they would go to a synagogue, but the thing is with Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. A synagogue needed 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue happen. There obviously wasn't that because the people who were God-fearers, those Gentiles who were following Yahweh, met by the river to pray. And a lot of them were women because otherwise there would have been a synagogue. So Paul and Silas go down to this praying place. And there they meet this woman called Lydia, who's rich. She's a tradeswoman. This is, she, she's a bit of a freak for her day. She's a woman who has um, property. She's a woman who's got um, money, a trade. She's really influential in purple cloth. They meet Lydia, 
She's a God-fearer. She's one of those Gentiles who's kind of following Yahweh. Paul tells her the gospel, and she says, fair play to you. Come on, everybody in my household. We'll follow Jesus as well. And he baptizes everybody. Brilliant. And she looks after them. She's got, he's got a sponsor. And then decide, right, we've done that. We'll go into the meeting place. So they go to the Agora. And they go to the Agora, which is the marketplace. And as they're walking around telling Jesus stories, there's this wee girl who's possessed by a demon, as you'd find when you go to a marketplace. And he's walking around, and this girl is going, Oi, he's talking about the Son of God. Listen to them. And Paul was really irritated, <laughs> really annoying. Can you imagine trying to tell a sermon and someone's heckling all the time going, Yay, talk about Jesus. <laughs> it was embarrassing. It was distracting. And so eventually Paul loses it and turns around and says to the demon, Go away! And it does. And so the, this girl who's been possessed of a demon, a demon of fortune telling, is freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is brilliant. Her owners are none too happy about it. And so they say, well, our money's gone. She was our money-making scheme. And now she can't do it. This is not good. And so they drag them, Paul and Silas, to another part of the town where they kind of settle disputes. And they're dragged in front of a crowd and they're, they're accused of being unsettlers of the peace because they've caused all this, this turmoil. So there's a real thing kicking off. And they're sent to a prison. And while they're in this prison, they don't whinge and they don't moan. What do they do? They break out the songs of hymns of fellowship and they start singing Shine, Jesus, Shine at midnight. <laughs> so it says they were praising God at midnight. Can you imagine if you're trying to get some kip? You probably wouldn't be too happy. <laughs> Praising Jesus at midnight in a prison cell. And then an earthquake happens. And it shatters the, the bars. The doors fly open. The guard goes, oops, I'm going to be crucified because these guys have run away. And Paul says, it's all right. We're still here. And the guy goes, well, well what? this is bizarre. What can I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in Jesus Christ, you and your household. And the guy goes, all right then. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> no alpha course needed there, but I think maybe a few more words were shared. You know, like, How do I become a Christian? Believe in Jesus. All right, here we go. He becomes a Christian. His family become Christians. And so we have the first church in Philippi made up of a wealthy woman Gentile. We have a slave girl, working-class slave girl who used to be demon-possessed, and we have kind of a middle-class soldier-turned-jailer, and that is the formation of the church in Philippi, which happens to be the first church in Europe. Forget Geneva, Paris, or even Canterbury or York. The first church in Europe was Philippi. It's the first place that Paul shared the gospel in Europe. So what was it about the Philippian church? These are not in order, sorry, they got the thing mixed up. But this church was special to Paul. He founded it from the very beginning. He visited a number of times. They were wealthy and generous, okay? It was a wealthy church in many ways. They supported Paul financially and gave gifts to the church. And not just financially, whenever he was in trouble in Rome, they sent Epaphroditus to go and help him out and see to his needs. Sadly, Epaphroditus gets ill, and that's one of the reasons he writes this letter. They were supportive, committed. They were partners in the gospel. They were a real mix of people. As I said, there were different cultures. There were different levels of society. And they were normal. We read about people falling out 
having disagreements. They were normal people. And as I was reading this, I realized that I was looking in a metaphorically, metaphorical church mirror. And I could see our church there. We're relatively normal <laughs> on our good days. <laughs> we are blessed to be a fairly well-off church. And we seek to be generous with that. We support a number of different people and projects and agencies. We seek to do that. We're passionate about getting involved in mission and ministry. We are committed and caring. So I'm looking at Philippi and going, this is a familiar church. Notice Philippi, if you read through the book, there's not any big major issues like some of the other churches that Paul writes to. This is a love letter to a church that he's founded, encouraging them. And so what he says to Philippi, let's think, what, is, what has God got to say to us as a similar church? So we have Paul's prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Paul's prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you can discern what is best and pure and blameless to the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. I love the fact that Alex is with us and he's doing the double. He did the 915 and the 1045, bless him. Um, what would our prayer be for our sister churches individually around this time? What would their prayer be for us? This is Paul's prayer for Philippi. And what does this prayer pray? What is his fundamental prayer for this place? His heart's desire is that their love may abound more and more so that they can be more squidgy and cuddly? No. That their love would increase more and more in depth of knowledge and insight. This is not knowledge as in, see if you can become the best at who wants to be a millionaire. What is this depth of knowledge and insight? Well, I'm sorry to say, this ain't going away anywhere. <laughs> Do you know him? Because the knowledge that he desperately wants, the church in Philippi, one that is passionate about Jesus already, the one he's desperate, he wants them desperately to know Jesus more. Because the more we know Jesus, the more we are like him. The more we're like him, the more we demonstrate the fruits of righteousness. Why do we have fruit? It's not just to accompany the puddings that we have or to think that we're on a diet by having an apple. That's more than that. Fruit is there to regenerate, to reproduce, to cause more fruit. One seed goes into the ground to create another tree, which will create many more trees. That is the purpose of fruit. Paul says, know Jesus more, be more like Jesus, and you will reproduce. The church will grow. The more we know Jesus, the more the church will grow. That's why this question is not going away anywhere. Do you know him well enough? If you're satisfied with how well you know Jesus, you may as well pack up and go home now. Our prayer is that your love would grow in the knowledge of Jesus more and more. And then he says a really pastoral thing. He says, listen, let me tell you what's been going on with me. So what actually has happened to Paul? So this letter is being written about 10 years after the church has been founded in Philippi. He's gone there maybe two or three times in between, and a few things have happened to Paul. Well, we find out quite a few in um, 2 Corinthians 11. It tells us a few things about what Paul's been up to. Um, this is like his diary, so to speak. So if you want to turn to it, you can, but here's a paraphrase. This is what Paul's been up to. He's been in prison lots, 
He's been beaten with sticks three times, with 39 lashes he's had five times, he's been pelted with rocks, shipwrecked three times, and been adrift for a day and a night on the sea. He's been in danger from Jews, Gentiles, false teachers, and bandits. His work has been ongoing, there's been no break, he's been hungry, thirsty, sleep-derived, cold, and naked, and he always carries a worry about the churches that he's planted. Rejoice! That's what Paul's been going through. And he says, now I'll tell you what's been going on. That's from 2 Corinthians, around a similar kind of situation Paul's been in. That's what Paul's been going through. Lots have happened. That's the context of writing. And now he's writing this message, this letter to this church while he is in chains, more than likely in Rome, under house arrest. I've got a picture here that's going to show, actually, oh, in a moment, he says all of this has been worth it. All those, be- all those things, those years of struggle and trial, it's been worth it. Why? I want you to know that what's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And then he explains why. It's not a great picture, but I think it's, it's lovely. This is Paul pictured in Rome, and he is chained to a, a praetorian guard. They would have been on a rota, Okay? So imagine, um, you know, Marcus, the Roman guard, comes down, gets chained up with Paul, and he sat there, and Paul turns to him and says, so, hello, hello, do you know why I'm here? No. I'm here about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And he starts telling the story of Jesus, and he goes, uh, have, you, have you clocked off? Yes, I'm finished now. <laughs> off he goes. So then um, Cicero comes in. Morning, morning. Do you know why I'm here? No. I'm here because of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And this goes on through the whole rota. And they come back and he says, right, I told you, Marcus, about Jesus last time. Let me tell you a little bit more. And what we gather is that all the guards, the Praetorian guards, the elite guards, the SAS of the Roman army are all hearing about Jesus. And it doesn't stop there. They go home. Marcus goes home and he talks to his wife, Cornelia, and says, tell you what, that Paul, he goes on and on. What does he go on about? He goes on about this bloke called Jesus. What about this bloke called? Well, apparently he died and then he rose again. He rose again from the dead. I need to find out more about that. And the gospel spreads because Paul's in chains and the guards are on a rota. (laughs) I didn't have that in the first service. I should have said that one. They were hearing about this pernicious religion regularly because Paul was in prison for telling people about Jesus. So he goes, what's the worst that can happen to me? They can kill me. We'll get to that in a minute. But what, they can put me in another prison? I'll just tell them again about Jesus. I had the privilege last week of going to Spring Harvest. And guys, can we honor our lead minister, Lisa, for the work that she's been doing in Spring Harvest, guys? wasn't that good. No. <laughs> no, it was. Bless her. You know, she's been working hard, she, and she's starting to think again tomorrow, which is great. But while we were there last week, we, on the Thursday evening, we heard stories about a woman called Hei Wu. A woman called Hei Wu was there, and it was kind of communications lockdown because her life is in danger. She comes from North Korea, and through a translator who was just an awesome woman translating um, her North Korean, uh, she told her story, and essentially, these are really short recaps, and don't, uh, they don't do her story service. Essentially, she's a Christian in North Korea. If you know anything, North Korea is the worst country in the world to be a Christian. You can't even tell your children you're a Christian. 
in case they let it slip or they go and tell someone. So Hei Wu was a Christian. Her husband was a Christian. He went to one of the forced labor camps, which apparently don't exist, according to the official line. But we've sat in our photos. They were, he was at one of these forced labor camps. And while he was there, he told people about Jesus. And he tried to find churches within these, these kind of essentially concentration camps. And her husband was killed for his faith. Hei Wu was arrested, tortured, beaten at one of these camps as well. And she wanted to follow her husband's example. So she talked about Jesus. She wanted to plant churches within these concentration camps that were meant to stop people telling people about Jesus. Eddie Lyle said, if you want to make the church grow, make it illegal. Because that's where the church is growing. It's exactly the same as what Paul was doing. I'm here in the chains. You're here. You've got nothing better to do. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is a really salient lesson because... Paul's essentially saying, if I can talk to my jailer after all those beatings about Jesus, then how about you talk about Jesus to the person sat opposite you at work, at your comfy office, which is air-conditioned, and you have water on tap, and lunch breaks, and isn't everything nice? Why don't you talk to your friend in the playground, or at the coffee shop, or even in your family? It's a challenge that we can share Jesus in every situation the prison or the playground. That was just one of the things that spread around the Praetorian guard, spread around the whole household. And there's another reason he goes on to say why it's important. Um, if maybe you know this guy, this guy's called Keith Green. He was a, quite a well-known Christian musician, 70s and 80s. Um, some great pieces of music. Uh, amazing story. If you've read his book, it's called No Compromise. Read it. It's amazing. It's awful. You don't want to um, read it. Uh, by the time you finish it, you go, I wish I'd never read it. It's far too challenging. But please read it. It's uh, outstanding. But the story of Keith is that he told many, many hundreds of people about Jesus. Lots of people became Christians and went into ministries because of his work. And on the 28th of July, 1982, he boarded a Cessna airplane with 11 other people, two of which were his children, Josiah and Bethany, two-year-old and a three-year-old. And at some point, there was a malfunction, the plane crashed, and everybody was killed. Um, it's really, it's a, quite an um, amazing part of the story. His wife takes it on melody in the book. And she gets lots of messages from people about how his death impacted them. And one stuck with me. In fact, when I read it, it moved me deeply as a kind of 16-year-old. And what happens, this person wrote to Melody, his wife, saying, I was driving along, I heard the news of Keith's death, and tears started flowing. And so I pulled over to the lay-by, and I just wept at the passing of Keith, but also going, who is going to talk to our generation now about Jesus? And loudly I heard the voice of God say, you are. Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it remains only a single grain. But when it dies, it gives birth to a new tree. We know this guy, don't we? Billy Graham. I always think it was unfair. He died at 99. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> give him a break. He could have at least got a telegram. <laughs> I'm still working my way through his book. It's about that thick. I'm going to finish it in a couple of years' time. 
It's an amazing story. He's been profoundly influential over many Christian leaders' lives, including myself. He's been his example, but he's been preaching to so many people, probably the person who's preached to most people across this planet. Millions of people have heard Billy Graham talk about Jesus. Maybe you were taken to a crusade at some point or whatever, and you became a Christian and knew someone who did. He was massively influential, and he passed away, and there was appropriate outpouring of grief but also people were saying, who is gonna, who's going to be, there's gonna, never going to be another Billy Graham. Can we say hallelujah to that? Because our problem is we too often leave it to the experts. When we were doing some outreach out in the streets, um, we did some training and some kind of briefing, and uh, people were saying, oh, if I'm out there and someone comes with a really tricky question, I'll just go, Phil! <laughs> and I go, <laughs> I'm not the expert. Lisa's not the expert. We are the experts, all of us. Don't leave it just to Alpha. Go, okay, I've been praying for this friend for, I don't know, 16 years. I've never told them about Jesus, but I'll invite them to Alpha because that'll get them saved. Alpha is a tool. Christianity Explored is a tool. What about you? Don't leave it to the experts because what if the experts aren't there? So you just retreat and go, well, it's clearly not a season for the gospel. Nonsense. Don't leave it to the experts. These guys, I don't know, are they here today, any of them, to embarrass them? Great. Excellent. Um, a few of these people and a good number of others who did the outreaches were saying to me beforehand, I'm really scared about this. I'm scared about going in the streets and telling people about Jesus or owning up to my faith. I'm scared about going out and giving a bag of blessing to someone and saying, this is from from the, the church because we love Jesus and Jesus loves you. I'm scared about it, but we're going to go and do it. And they went out. They didn't leave it to the experts. And they came home rejoicing. And there's been loads, I've got quite a few stories of people who've come to me and said, you know, because of that, I, I, I've spoken to people more about Jesus. I've spoken about, do you know him? I've had a little bit more courage to invite someone to a John Archer evening or to Alpha. I've just had a little bit more boldness. And that's what Paul says. Because he was off the scene, but still setting an example, people went, right, we'll get on board. And they went for it. So friends, let's get on board with this. Don't leave it to the experts. Get stuck in. Invite people. Tell people about Jesus. Be a little bit bold. Because God is doing something at the moment. He is doing something that he has begun, and he will see it through to completion. Get on board. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I'm going to quickly whip through these other things. I love the fact he says, and for this I rejoice. And he goes, yes, and I will indeed rejoice. I think he meant, I will rejoice. No, seriously, I do rejoice. This isn't that Paul was a bit of a masochist who kind of enjoyed getting beaten up. He was rejoicing because the gospel was being served. Jesus was being glorified. Jesus' purposes were being seen. Joy is not about getting this. Joy is about a sense of peace and knowledge that, that there's a purpose being seen to. So we come back to would you rather. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask any more things about feathers or custard. But Paul has a would you rather in this passage. Essentially, would you rather live for Christ or die for Christ. It's not a lesser of two evils. It's actually, what's the greater of two goods in this? For me, to live is Christ, 
And to die is gain. What does that mean? To die is bonus. To die is extra. To die is is an add-on. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Would you die for your faith? I watched a movie once called Lady Jane, and it's about um, Jane Grey, the woman who was kind of queen for nine days. And at the end of the, the movie, she's being interrogated about her faith, and she has to renounce her commitment to Christ, otherwise she will die, and she doesn't do it. And I remember watching it going, would, what would I do in that? Could I die for my faith? I'm more so, would you live for Christ? Because Paul says, kind of, that's harder. That's harder. For Paul, he said, I'd rather, I'd rather go and have put my feet up and have a better retirement because I've worked hard. I don't want to be beaten anymore. Would you live for Christ? He says, whatever happens, live a life worth living. The people of Philippi were proud of their citizenship of Rome. Paul says, don't be proud of that. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live as citizens of heaven. And what does that actually mean? Well, a few years ago, this book came out, Purpose Driven Life. Maybe you've read it. Um, It became a massive bestseller. It's a Christian book by Rick Warren. It became incredibly popular, even in the non-Christian market. It says up there about being the best-selling, best-selling fiction hardback. What is it? I can't read it. Non-fiction hardback in, in history, next to the Bible. Um, why? Because people were seeking purpose. I did a questionnaire a few years ago with the men in this church, and something was about the question was what What is the benefits of being a Christian? Nearly every single one of them, these responses had in some way. It gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me something to live for. Paul says, I live for Christ. He says, you've been granted to believe. You've also been granted to suffer. If you live for Christ, it's going to be painful. Nobody said it was easy. The Coldplay lyric goes, Jesus certainly didn't. And here are the countries around the world where it's death or imprisonment to follow Jesus. Here they are here. And we'll be praying about them tonight with Felicity and at the prayer meeting. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You'll have trouble because if you live the Jesus way, if you believe in him and live the Jesus way, it jars with the world. The world seeks a self-satisfying life. The gospel seeks a self-sacrificing life. Those two things cannot exist in the same plane. They will jar against each other. And if you live a self-sacrificing life over and above a self-serving life, there will be a clash. If you have a clash, there'll be opponents. There will be opposition. There will be hardness. Jesus was an awful salesman and recruiter. (laughs) He said, follow me. It's going to be really tough. You won't enjoy it. It'll be difficult. The world will be out to get you. Come along. And that's what Paul's saying. So this church where there's not a great deal wrong with it, he says, keep going. Keep going. And I think that's a word for us as well. Keep going. Rejoice together in Jesus Christ. Rejoice together in Jesus Christ. As we go over these next couple of weeks, keep those words in mind. Joy together in Christ for his gospel's sake. Amen.